This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Hi everyone and thank you for tuning in to the 254th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast, which is now but one of four podcasts that comprise the Hollywood Reporters podcast network. The others being It Happened in Hollywood, Behind the Screen, and TV's Top 5. I'm the host of Awards Chatter, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is one of the most revolutionary figures in the history of comedy. A British actor who, some 20 years ago, began creating outlandish characters and then taking them out into the world to interact with unsuspecting people. Something that really hadn't been done before. He has continued to do so ever since, all the while very rarely giving interviews as himself. This conversation being a notable exception, the incomparable Sasha Baron Cohen. Cohen's work has reached an ever-expanding audience since his start on local TV in the UK. After serving as a contributor to Channel 4's version of The Daily Show, The 11 O'Clock Show, on which he debuted in 1998, he left to create and star on The Ali G Show, which ran on Channel 4 for one season in 2000 and then two seasons on HBO from 2003 through 2004 and then made a variety of feature films centered on the characters for which he first became famous. Ali G, a white Brit posing as a gangsta, Borat Sagdiev, a Kazakh TV personality dispatched to America, and Bruno, a gay Austrian fashion enthusiast. Respectively, in 2002's Ali G in the House, 2006's Borat, Cultural Learnings of America for Make Benefit, Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan, for which Cohen was nominated for a Best Original Screenplay Oscar and won a Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy Golden Globe, and 2009's Bruno. He also made an entirely scripted film about another character, General Aladdin, a dictator of a North African country who winds up in America, in 2012's The Dictator. Over the last few years, though, Cohen has been relatively quiet, with many assuming that his personal fame and that of his characters had precluded him from continuing to do the sort of work for which he is known. But this year, just as some were beginning to count him out, along came Showtime's Who is America, on which, through the brilliance of his abilities and the magic of makeup and hairstyling, he brought out into the world new characters for the first time in some 15 years. A far-left activist, a far-right conspiracy theorist, an Italian photographer, an Israeli anti-terrorism expert, a Finnish YouTuber, and a British ex-con, all helping to expose bigotry, hypocrisy, and general stupidity throughout American society. For Cohen's remarkable achievement, which has had not just TV viewers, but countless comedy titans buzzing with amazement and laughter, the 47-year-old has been Golden Globe nominated for Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy TV Series, and looks like a serious threat to win. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, Cohen and I discussed all of the above, plus much more, from the origin stories of his characters, to his closest calls with police and bigots, to his 2003 sit-down with future President Donald Trump. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. 
Sasha, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? It's a bit like a trial, isn't it? <laughs> um, I was born in London, England, and my mom was a kind of exercise keep fit teacher, and my dad was an accountant, but prior to that he was a, a journalist, actually, a, a magazine editor. Was comedy around you when you were a kid? Were your parents funny? Did you have siblings who were funny? Yeah, my dad was obsessed with comedy, and it was very, very important for him to sort of educate us in comedy. So we watched quite a lot of American comedy growing up, Danny Kay and... Well, I read Peter Sellers. Yeah, 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 yeah. Peter Sellers yeah. was huge. Yeah. And, and I mean, my dad was a brilliant wit. Just quick. It, you know, he basically would have these friends who... He would just have these kind of one-line witty arguments with right. where they were kind of put down. You know, that was a kind of very important thing for him, for him to be funny and for us to be funny. <laughs> so he was always joking, you know. For, for reasons that are going to come up in a little bit, I want to ask you, how important was Judaism in your life as a kid? Were you a pretty observant family? I wouldn't say observant. I mean, you know, we were always very proud of our cultural identity. And I think I still am, you know, I believe in cultural diversity and, you know, different ethnicities being unique and being, you know, free to be proud and carry on their own traditions. So we were definitely aware that we were Jewish. I mean, my mum was Israeli. Uh, my dad was a, a born in the East End of London, a, was officially a Cockney, but was brought up in Cardiff mm -hmm. in Wales as one of the only two Cohen families there during World wow. War Two. And an early blending of a few of your interests, from what I've read, trying to learn about your pre-public life was your bar mitzvah. What, what was the entertainment at your bar mitzvah? Oh, oh my God, you've really done your research. Wow. <laughs> You've gone deep. Okay, so basically, I provided the entertainment at my mitzvah. At the time, I was a break dancer. Yes. So, from my first paying job was I was a break dancer in Covent Garden, was an area where you would go to perform. Mm -hmm. And this was nineteen. So my mitzvah was nineteen eighty-four. Right. We started hearing about hip hop, or at that point, it was called electro. Right. I was a white middle-class Jewish kid, <laughs> and. We started teaching ourselves how to breakdance every day and then decided to go and perform. And obviously we weren't very good, but we were tiny. We were 11-year-old kids. So when it came to my mitzvah, the it was actually me doing... I laid down a lino on the floor and I'd bought some ski goggles, which right. at the time, you know, I wore ski gloves and ski goggles. Right. And, uh, yeah, that was my first job, me and my friend David Hume. <laughs> and probably for, the yeah. earliest... Seeds of Ali G, possibly? Yes, exactly. Yeah. I basically, at the age of 11 and 12, was <laughs> a real-life Ali G. You know, so I was completely into hip-hop. I was obsessed with a DJ called Tim Westwood, yep. who was a son of a bishop. Yep. But he would speak like this and, yo, you know, you know he basically wanted to right. be a black gangster from right. Compton, if that's a politically correct yes. term. I'm not sure. Well, so just one other thing about Judaism is that it seems like it's sort of set the stage for you to have your first acting opportunities, right? So you, before college, what's Habanim Drawer? Okay, so Habanim Drawer was a kind of Jewish left-wing youth club. It was basically an opportunity to meet girls, really. <laughs> but there would be these summer camps where on the final night they would call them Zigim or <laughs> sketches, and it was an opportunity for me to write my first sketches. 
and um, were you funny out of, of the gate? You, well, you, I put a lot of effort yeah. into it. Yeah. I remember I did the first one when I was eight years old, and I loved it. And I'm sure I don't think the audience really liked it, but <laughs> I found myself hilarious, and I found myself during the year writing down ideas for these final sketches, which right. was absurd because everybody else in the summer camp would come up with the idea <laughs> an hour beforehand. And yeah. I was I had been prepping for it for months. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I was in the, I was in that youth group and then actually I started doing a kind of double act with my brother where we dressed as Hasidic Jews. <laughs> we were called the Schwitzing brothers. <laughs> And we sang a song called Schwitzing, which right. uh, was the first thing that ever went on TV of mine. We should say that's like sweating. Right? Exactly. Yeah. For those of you out there, <laughs> if there are some of you out there who right. don't speak fluent Yiddish, <laughs> schwitzing means to sweat. Right. And obviously, if you see Hasidic Jews, they are extremely overdressed. Right. doesn't matter what the weather is, and they wear these sort of heavy clothes. Right. And it's, uh, it's really an absurd way to dress. I think it's got nothing to do with Judaism. It's just, just deeply Style. uncomfortable. <laughs> And so they schwitz, they right. sweat. And so me and my brother wrote this song called Schwitzing, right. which was about these two Hasidic Jews who are walking down the street and they, uh, <laughs> and they start schwitzing. Right. And so this Hasidic Jew starts taking off his clothes and finally he's so hot and he schwitzes so much he shaves off his beard and he <laughs> converts to Christianity and he walks down the street carrying this crucifix and <laughs> this huge seven-foot crucifix. And we shot the video for it for the BBC. Oh, my God. And the BBC said it was blasphemous. <laughs> it was the first time I had a run-in with the lawyers. Oh, my God. And they said it was blasphemous. How old were you again? Uh, this was, I was 22. Okay. Uh, they said it was blasphemous and that I needed to... Uh, it was offensive to Christianity and Judaism. <laughs> and so I needed to take out any offensive references to Christianity. <laughs> So I said, what about, what about the offensiveness to Judaism? And they said, well, under the blasphemy laws, right. blasphemy laws only apply to offensiveness against Christianity oh in England. God. So they're like, the, the anti-Semitic stuff is fine. That's fine. Yeah. <laughs> so we chopped out the kind of right. me schlepping the oh uh, seven-foot crucifix down a so road in Hoxton. That's great. Now, so you said that's when you were 22. Okay, yeah. We I left out. No, no, no. Well, just because in between that, there's a kind of important chapter in there, I guess, at Cambridge, right? You, yes, I went to Cambridge. Okay, yeah, that's And true. while you're there, you know, people may wonder what it, first of all, it's an amazing accomplishment to get in there. Then you're studying history. And in a very intense way, you were talking, you know, we spoke a little earlier about the fact that you did a dissertation on the role that Jews played in the U.S. civil rights movement. And from what I read, you came to America for a little while to, to do research. And I wonder, I guess that may have been your first exposure to America and Americans. What did you make of us? Okay, so this is me 20 years old. And in Cambridge, you've got an opportunity to write an undergraduate thesis. And that allows you to take a whole term off. Right. Now, I knew that I wanted to do an acting role. I was playing Serrano de Bergerac. I knew that was going to take me two months of preparation to do that role. Right. So I decided to do this dissertation so I could take off two months a semester. And there was an opportunity. I came up with this idea of researching Jews in the what was called the black civil rights movement yeah. at the time. At the time, the, the term African-Americans didn't exist. Yep. So I went out to America and I bought myself something called a Delta Pass, which was for $300, you could have unlimited flights within 30 days if you were a student. And I started interviewing these old sort of Jews who'd been involved in the civil rights movement and African-American leaders who were leaders of the civil yeah. rights movement. 
And I basically toured around some of the ghettos in America as a kind of 20 year old. I didn't own a suitcase at the time, so my mum gave me her roll-on suitcase. <laughs> and I remember it had like a red ribbons on it. Right, right, right. Because my mum didn't want to lose her suitcase, so she wanted to be easily <laughs> identifiable when it came out on the carousel. Right. And so I just imagine me as 20 years old walking around these ghettos in America with this little roll-on suitcase. Probably not much less out of place than uh, a Borat. Yeah, exactly. It's a bit like Borat. So, for example, I studied for a while at the... I did some research at the Martin Luther King Center yeah. in Atlanta. At that point, Atlanta was extremely racially segregated, and I found a YMCA that was right next... I think it was about 100 meters away from the Martin Luther King Center, so I thought, brilliant. It's four bucks a night. I'm going to stay there for the month I'm in Atlanta. And I get there, and I get down, uh, firstly, I think it's called Five Points, the area. At that point, on Martin Luther King Boulevard. And it was extremely racially segregated. So I was literally the only white person walking down the street with my mother's roll-on with the red ribbons. And I get to this YMCA, and it's bolted up. And I just, you know, I'm going to stay there. And the guy opens the door, and he looks at me, and he's like... What do you want? I go, I've come here to stay. Right. And he goes, what? <laughs> I go, yeah, I've come here to stay. I'm working at the Martin Luther King Center. So I go in and he gets me to sign this form. And I start reading the form. And it says, in the event of death, <laughs> I give all my possessions to, and you have to fill it. I go, is this necessary? He goes, and he said, yeah, it's necessary. <laughs> so I remember getting to the room, and the room looked like a terrible set, like a you know a kind of crime scene set. Oh, my God. But if you saw that in an actual movie, you'd go, this is too much. There was like, there'd clearly been a fight in the room, and the... And that's where I kind of stayed for a while while I was in the, studying in the Martin Luther King Center. this is your first taste of America. <laughs> yeah, that was my first taste. And then at one point, my parents come out to visit me. I'm in Boston, and I'm doing some, interviewing some civil rights leaders there. And it's the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. And I said to my parents, we went to one night to a synagogue. Okay, next night, I go, we're in America. Let's, you know, have an American experience. I go, there's this Jewish congregation called the Black Hebrews. I think they called the Black Hebrews the Black Israelites. <laughs> What I didn't realize was that they were a black nationalist group <laughs> that had no connection with Judaism. I said, let's go to their synagogue. Right. I mean, this is about cultural diversity. Right. We're here. So my mother dressed up. I think she's wearing pearls. My dad put on his best suit. And we get a cab and we're dropped off in the middle of the ghetto <laughs> at night. And obviously the synagogue is completely locked up. It's not a synagogue. Oh and there are no taxes. And I'm there with my parents who are quite upset with me. I've dropped them off in the middle of the ghetto while they're dressed in their finest. Their best, uh, stuff. Yeah. But yes, oh, so that was... Great. Well, so you go back and finish at Cambridge, graduated, I know, with honors, and now with this great kind of resume and launching pad, you decide, was there something about, for a moment, you were going to do a, a normal career path, right? Yes, well, the dissertation ended up being pretty good, actually. Mm -hmm. Accidentally, I'd interviewed one of the heads of the civil rights movement. And I, because I came <laughs> back to Cambridge, I said, I've got nothing. This whole theory didn't make sense. The right. Black Jewish Alliance, which I'd gone out to investigate, turned out it didn't actually exist. <laughs> no one had heard of it. And my... Uh, Professor at the time was called Professor Tony Badger. He said, well, show me who you've got. And I was like, I've got this guy, this guy, I've got this guy, Bob Moses. He goes, wait a minute, Bob Moses? Right. Bob Moses hasn't given an interview for 20 years. And he was the, he was the head of something called SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. He goes, all right, you've got a dissertation. And it ended up doing really well, actually, mm -hmm. the dissertation. And he asked me to stay on and do a PhD where I was going to 
look at basically Jewish radicalism in black civil rights movements around the world, so comparing uh -huh. America uh -huh. to South Africa. I started doing the, the PhD, did, you know, day one. I go, let me see what it's like. Right. And I was so bored. <laughs> I thought, am I going to spend the next three years in the library by myself? Right. And decided, no, I'm going to try and become an actor or a comedian. Was there even somewhere in between that I read something about investment banking? Or was that not a... Uh, oh, well, what you probably read was at the time in Cambridge, there were a lot of headhunters who would come around mm -hmm. and they would, you know, offer you jobs in investment banking mm -hmm. or in management consultancy. And so that was kind of the option. You know, mm -hmm. do you go into the city? Do you earn a lot of money or do you choose to earn nothing? Right, <laughs> and pursue the arts. Yeah, well, pursue the arts. at Cambridge, you had been doing stuff within the universities drama program and Footlights, which is sort of outside of it, right? Okay, so no, what actually happened, so the reason I went to Cambridge yeah. was I wanted to join the Footlights. So I was a massive Monty Python fan, right. you know, a huge fan of Peter Cook. I get there to Footlights, do the audition, and I'm rejected. And three times a year I auditioned for Footlights, and every time I was rejected. And that was the reason I went. And yeah. as a result, because I was rejected from Footlights, I started acting and within the started, yeah the I mean there's a brilliant sort of acting community there yeah. and and so I had to learn how to act which ended up being really useful yeah. with the kind of Ali G stuff and of course and so when you then graduate and decide you're gonna abandon the yeah. further education did you impose sort of a limit on yourself or was it your parents saying you know you can give it a try, but we don't want, this is not what we supported your education for. Like, how did you decide what the future was going to be? Yeah, I mean, my parents said, you know, why can't you do this as a hobby? Mm -hmm. You know, you could be a great barrister. A barrister is a kind of, you know, court yeah. lawyer there. They go, that's the theatricality. <laughs> and yeah. So I gave myself five years to be able to not make it, but to manage to pay for my lifestyle, yeah. which was pretty cheap at the time. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I started working as a waiter, basically doing stand-up. And it was very difficult because I was doing characters. I was doing mm -hmm. a character called Solly, who was this complete idiot. <laughs> and he was the idea was he was the, you know, the worst stand-up of all time. Right. And so the audiences would be in hysterics, but I wouldn't get the gig. And I'd say, why, why aren't I getting the gig? And they'd go, because you're terrible. You're the worst stand-up of all time. I go, but that's the that's idea. That's the point, yeah. Okay, but they were in hysterics because, but they're laughing at you. Ugh. Okay, but that's that's the idea. So I was, I was doing these kind of clown characters, and then I found out about a clown teacher, a guy called Philip Golier, uh -huh. who was this legendary clown teacher. And I thought, is the stuff I'm doing is it connected with clown? Uh -huh. So I started studying with him all at the same time as doing other things. Like I read, you were a catalog model. Okay, that is what's called an exaggeration. This is what this is why uh, the internet is dangerous. We're setting the record straight. Okay, here. so there was, could you call it modelling? I mean, let's clarify <laughs> that. Okay, so there was a period in English youth culture called lad culture, which was where they were celebrating men in their 20s for being what's called blokes. Mm -hmm. So, you know, drinking beer, watching football. And somehow my face seemed to be the archetypal lad. So I did a TV show where I, it was a documentary on ladism and they chose me to be Seriously? the lad. <laughs> and then I had a couple of photo shoots for a lad magazine called Loaded, 
where the idea was that they were not choosing models, but they were choosing normal lads. Right. And so I was, in inverted commas, you were the, the, the model. But lad. as you can see, anyone who's listening to this, you know, if they were in the room now, you'd be very, very clear that I could never have modeled. But that's very kind that you could have even implied Well, hey, that. so what I'm curious is how, from this struggling stand-up and just scraping together a living to allow you to do that, do you then, within your five-year period, wind up at Channel 4 doing what you have now made a career of doing? So how does somebody get on TV for the first time? How does a character like Ali G become your guy? How does the idea, which I don't think really existed before, of having a sketch character then coexist with members of the public, where did that enter the picture? So just those five years, they were obviously important. I mean, I would say the biggest factor is luck. <laughs> you know, I would say, you know, 90% of my career has been down to luck. Because at that time in England as well, the likelihood of, you know, having any success as an actor or as a comedian was very limited. I necessarily wanted to just be a stand-up. Right. And the idea of actually moving to Hollywood or anything like that was completely unfeasible right. and ridiculous. Now we've had this whole wave of English actors, Benedict Cumberbatch mm -hmm. and Tom Hardy and all these guys coming over. At that point, it seemed completely ludicrous. So what happened was I started doing a stand-up act, mm -hmm. which was a bit more obvious than the first character right. I did. It was a character called the Mujahideen Touring Theatre Company. <laughs> he was a member of the Taliban who just wanted to make people laugh, and right. he was into alternative comedy. <laughs> And it started doing really well in the stand-up right. act, but my agent found out about it, and she threatened to sack me. Now, you had an agent from what? I won an award at the Edinburgh uh, Theatre Festival. Yes. And from that, I managed to get an agent. And now you're saying the agent dumped you because of the Mujahideen Tour Touring theatre company, <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, I went for an audition on a talent show on ITV, mm -hmm. And basically, I did the routine, and it was the audition was at three o'clock in the afternoon. There were 500 people in the audience. They were mainly over the age of 80, and the routine was very rude. Right. It was very extreme. It had a lot of expletives in it, right. and the crowd were furious. <laughs> I mean, they were over they were mostly 90-year-olds, right. so they were you right. know they couldn't do much, but they were booing right. and asked me to leave, and I was leaving. I go, okay, I'm going to leave. And I start leaving and they cheer. And I go, ah, you want me to stay? I stay. And so the head of the channel, who I think was Nigel Lithgow at the time, wow, wow, wow. called up my agent and said he's banned from this channel. <laughs> and my agent said, all right, give up the act right. or you're, I'm sacking you. Mm -hmm. And I carried on doing the act. And then I got a job doing a very small cable TV show called F2F. And I, I wanted to be a comedian. I was, in fact, like a kind of host. I was in the kind of profession that I didn't want to do. Right. I was the host of a live one-hour debate show for teenagers. Right. So what I decided to do was to create these little characters and shoot with these little characters that I could link to. Right. You know, So we do an interview for two minutes linked to me commenting on the show, and I played five characters. Right. One of the characters was an early form of Ali G. This, he was called Jocelyn Cheadle-Hume. He was like an upper-class breakdancer, hip-hop guy. Right. And I went out to shoot with this character, and I would shoot two hours before the show. The show was live. Wow. So I'd shoot. Uh, I had this brilliant director who was an amazing editor. We'd go and basically I'd shoot for an hour, come back, he would edit, and then we'd stick them into the show live. 
And so I take out this character, Justin Trudeau Hume, and then I see some real life Ali G's, you know, Justin Trudeau Humes. And I say to my guy, I go, should I, so should I go over to them? Kids on skateboards. Yeah, there were kids on skateboards. Yeah. And I go, should I talk to them? And, <laughs> and so, again, bear in mind at this point, to my knowledge, there were no other comedians who were at, interacting with members of the real public. Yeah, yeah. There was no kind of reality comedy. Right. So it was a, this was a kind of pivotal moment in my life. You know, we're talking about luck. Yeah. You know, somebody else could have said, you know what, we're in a rush. Let's just do what we're going to do. Right. And he said, you know what, go over, speak mm. to them. So I went over I was like, and I started doing terrible skateboarding. I started doing some terrible breakdowns. And these guys started going, you're whack, man. You was whack. You was terrible. Whatever. And I stood up off two minutes. I said, wait a minute. I'm joking. Right. This is not, I'm putting on an act. <laughs> and I realized yeah. that they were shocked that they believed it. At that point, a tourist bus turns up. I look at the director and he nods. I jump on the tourist bus. We follow with the camera. I go upstairs, I grab hold of the mic, I start rapping, <laughs> we get off, we go into a pub, I start breakdancing on the floor of the pub, they call the police. <laughs> I then go into the lobby of this big business, I claim that my dad runs the big business. We go up to the top and I'm escorted out by security. We run back to the channel, I quickly change and I am completely invigorated. I don't know what has happened, but we kind of accidentally discovered this new form yeah. of comedy. And I'm so excited. Change, and we go live. We link to the first, first bit, and the audience just completely love it. You know, yeah. these yeah. teenagers completely love it because it was a new style of comedy. Right. We link to the second bit, they love it again. Link to the third bit, there's nothing there. The show ends, I'm hauled in front of the heads of the channel, and they say, listen, you do this again and you're fired. Even though it got such a great reaction? Yeah. They go, we're fired. We could be sued. This is a right. big business you did. The police were called. You didn't get releases <laughs> right, from anyone. Right. I mean, I didn't have, you know, I didn't even think of any of the legality. Oh, my God. And that was a moment where I came home and I said to my friend, I go, oh, my God, I think I've accidentally right. sort of chanced upon this form of comedy. And we wrote this document called Undercover Character Comedy. Oh, my God. And then the next week, I came up with Borat. So there was a massive fox hunting rally. And right. I thought, I've got to go out there. And again, I'm doing this live show. I've got an hour to do it. And I'm driving down there. And I think I want to play a foreign character. Right. And in the back of my car, I see there's a hat from Astrakhan in southern Russia, which I visited when I was 22. And I'd met, actually, the right. original Borat, the right. guy who had based <laughs> So I stick the hat on my head. Right. And I come out and start going with, I hold a little stick mic. I'm going up to people. I go, I'm from Moldova, Telavizkia. And tell me, in my country, uh, we like to hunt the Jew. And uh, do you think you should hunt the Jew? And then people say, well, actually, I, I mean, possibly, yes. <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose it's not as he was given a good start, yeah. And I put it on TV and it went down yeah. brilliantly. So I thought, oh, my God, there's actually... You know, what I've realized here is it's not just comedy interacting with real people, but what I can do is by presenting people with these very extreme characters who they believe are real, yeah. they will actually open up and reveal say things. Yeah, yeah, they reveal themselves. They would say things that they would normally say behind closed doors yeah. that they wouldn't normally say on right. English TV. <laughs> and so immediately I started writing up uh -huh. an idea for 
a show, mm -hmm. which I still have, actually. I found it. So I was 24 years old. And the, the pitch of the show was, it was Sasha Baron Cohen presents Moldovia Televis again. It was basically <laughs> me as Borat right. living undercover in a house right. with other students for three months. And there would be cameras in the house. Like real go, world. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was before Big Brother. Yeah, yeah. And I took it into Channel 4 and they said no. <laughs> but eventually they say, well, on the basis of that video, we'd like you to be a guy that we cut away to interviewing people on our late night show, the 11 o'clock show? So a year later, yeah. so they'd said no. I end up in Thailand. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to give up on the, you know, it's coming close to the end of my five years. I, right. I'm going to give up on this thing. It's ridiculous. I, I was getting, you know, I was doing a diving course. It was great. I was in code PP. It was, you know, it's perfect. I was with a guy. Another long story. We almost ended up dying oh. in the jungle, and the uh, we accidentally got into, walked into Burma by mistake. Oh so that's a separate story for a separate <laughs> podcast. And the guy I was stuck with on this beach, a guy called Reza, ended up marrying Gina Davis, coincidentally. <laughs> and I'm like, Reza, you know, let's just yeah, let's stay here for a few months. I was giving up on the dream, and then I get a phone call on the beach from my agent, right? And she says. There's this audition for this show called The 11 O'Clock Show. It's based on The Daily Show right. here. They come in. They want me to host the show, to be the John Stewart character. Mm -hmm. And I say, you know what? Actually, I wonder whether I could just do segments. Right. I show them Borat, this right. early form of Borat, who's called Alexi Crickler. And they go, okay, great. We'll shoot with him. I go, the problem is he's kind of owned by the BBC. Right. Because I've been shooting some stuff right, for the right, BBC, right. which hadn't gone on air. Right. And they said, all right, we'll think of another character and bring it back tomorrow. So the next day I came back with Ali G, you know. <laughs> and I think a week later we already shot with Ali G. And then, and that's and, what and, and then what happened was I became famous extremely quickly. Because people are watching this show, like with The Daily Show, partly to sort of consume real news but with a, with yes. a sense of humor. And you're the guy who is in some ways the most outrageous of all, right? Yes. Well, firstly, it was this new style of comedy. Yeah. So people hadn't seen that style of comedy beforehand. And secondly, you know, I don't know how to phrase this correctly, it was a non-white character. Yeah. So as a result, the ethnicities, the ethnic minorities in London found it very appealing. Yeah. So the kind of pirate radio stations immediately started quoting Ali G. <laughs> And no one knew that there was a person behind Ali G. Right. People thought Ali G was they a real person. They thought you were Ali G. They thought I was a real yeah. person. There was no photos of me as myself. And for the first two years, I kept myself hidden. Right. And the different ethnic communities were claiming Ali G as their own. So <laughs> the Afro-Caribbean community was saying he's one of ours. Right. The Greek community was saying he's ours. You know, oh the Iranian God. community, the Turkish community. Because this is just sort of pre-internet exploding. So people are not going to be able to just quickly figure you out. You, no, you hit on it. It's the beginning of the email attachment. And because right. of the email attachment, it allowed people to send links to Ali G. Right. So actually the internet allowed me to get famous very fast right. within a particular substrata. Yeah, yeah, now that I think about it, that's probably how I first saw you. Yeah. Um, so eventually this popularity leads to Channel 4 giving you your own show, the Ali G show, yeah. which ran for a season, six episodes in 2000, which then goes to the U.S. with same title, 2003 to 2004, total of 12 episodes, two seasons. I just want to ask you a few just to kind of 
plow quickly through a, a few logistical questions. And by can. the way, speed me up if I'm getting no, boring. Because no, it's I, not at the end of the day, I'm a verbose uh, London. No, let so. me tell you, it's this is fascinating, but I'm scared <laughs> I'm going to run out of time. Okay, well, don't worry, don't worry. No. You can, if you're editing it down, I'll give you longer. And oh, always, thank you. Yeah, that no, would be no, amazing. No, I mean, this is fascinating no, I love talking about myself. <laughs> tell me about you. Come on. So, uh, so narcissistic. So, no, on, where, where did you grow up? <laughs> Are you ready to tell me? South African no, Cape Town. Cape Town. Well, Cape Town. The, the parents from Cape Town. CT. Uh, so on the Ali G show, we see Ali G, we see Borat. We've talked about where they came from. And then there's another guy who we meet called Bruno. Yeah. Where did he come from? Okay, Bruno came from, he first appeared on, there was a small little cable channel in London called the Paramount Comedy Channel. And a producer there called Gary Reich saw me do the schwitzing act yes. <laughs> at this club, at the Regency Rooms in London. Right. And he says, I want you to do something for my show. I go, all right, I want to do... At the time, Ali G had not come out. Right. And I said, okay, I want to do something for Fashion Week. And I sat down with my friend, Jamie Glassman, who I was sharing an apartment with that night. And I said, you know, what character can I do? It's Fashion Week tomorrow. And I was going through the different voices I could do. And I go, okay, let's do German. And he goes... I said, okay, but if it's German, you'll probably bump into people from Germany. Right. Why don't we make it Austrian? Right. So I turn up at Fashion Week, and obviously there was incredibly low budget, and I was claiming to be a fashionista, but right. I had my costume designer, Jason Alper, went out and with a 30-pound budget ended up sort of dressing me, and everyone in <laughs> Fashion Week believed that I was a fashionista. Right. You know, I was going around, going, you know, I'm the... Um, <laughs> I'm Chrysler's muse, and I had, like, Chrysler was this uh, mythical Austrian fashion designer, and I was showing his stuff, and it was basically, what I'd done was I'd got all the kind of members, you know, high-ranking members of the SS, and I'd manipulated their photos to look like they'd been done in kind of photo shoots, <laughs> and, you know, in studio shots. So I was like, this is, this is Chrysler's latest work, it's very retro, you know, would you wear Chrysler? And, you know, people go, oh, yeah, I love that. You know, they're literally <laughs> looking at, you know, Himmler. And, right. <laughs> and then on the last day, I decided to wear Chrysler. Right. And I put on an SS uniform. <laughs> this is probably not uh, what people want to hear. <laughs> and uh, I turn up for work. I put, And the cameraman walks in the room and he goes, I quit. <laughs> and so I go, what do you mean you quit? We're going out. This is the last day we have to shoot. He goes... He goes, I refuse to film somebody wearing an SS uniform. Okay, but I'm Jewish. Yeah. Right, right. I'm clearly not an answer. Right. And he quits. And I go, okay, I call up the agency, the sort of uh, camera agency. I go, I need somebody who is okay with filming somebody who's dressed as a Nazi. <laughs> a guy turns up and he's got a kind of uh, devil-worshipping pentangle oh tattooed on his God. head. And I go into Fashion Week in an SS uniform, and people go, oh, I love it. So, oh, oh, honey, it's so retro. Oh, congratulations. You look amazing. There was one night I went to, there was an English Cockney designer who designed all the suits for the gangsters in London. And so the craze, and this sort of English mafioso had one guy who yeah. was their go-to guy. I won't say his name. And I turned up there, and then my idea was, we were in the Café de Paris in London, so I kept on going up to him and going, so, so tell me, why is, you know, why are your fashions so gay? You know, why are you the gayest designer out there? And he's like, don't effing call me gay, right? Don't, if you effing call me gay again. And again, you know, this is a, 
This is like at the Café de Paris. Right. There's every gangster right. in London is there. Right. I go, of course, of course. But, you know, have you invented to realise you're a gay? And, so, <laughs> and then I remember this little, little man who's yeah. about five foot two yeah. comes up to me, pulls my head down. He goes, you call him gay again. I'm going to shoot you. <laughs> and then I go over to somebody in the corner of the room. I said, I go, who is that guy who just the small guy, the small little schnip? And he goes, oh, that, that's Ernie the Shooter. Oh, my God. They started looking for me. And I ended up hiding in a cupboard in the Café de Paris. Serious? And then the next day in my apartment, we get a phone call where somebody wants to meet up, meet Bruno for a meeting. And it's in some really weird place just on the edge of London. And they'd kind of track me down. Oh, my God. So it was was definitely... That was the beginning of him. Yeah, that was the beginning (laughs) of Bruno. But but where does does that, I guess you could call it chutzpah or you could call it fearlessness or whatever. I mean, where does that come from? I don't think it's fearlessness because I get very scared. But what I have an ability to do is even when I'm really scared, I want the piece to be really funny. Right. So I'm, I can try and overcome my extreme fear. But obviously I ended up hiding in a cupboard. You know, I'm not fearless. I'm terrified. And you've been, I mean, how many times between the various projects have the police been called after you? I mean, lots of times. I think yeah. on Ball Rat alone, we had, I think we had about 35 run-ins with <laughs> Secret Service. And, and things where I'm reading where, you know, people maybe sort of don't deep down realize that it's all so real that in one situation, I mean, what caused you to shatter your heel? Oh, so in Bruno, we had so many uh, near arrests on Ball Rat that we hired a bodyguard on Bruno, whose only job was for me not to get arrested. We were in Kansas and there was a scene where Bruno accidentally has a romantic liaison with his assistant and wakes up (laughs) in the morning and there is something called the pedal-powered fucking machine. I don't know if I can say (laughs) that. You can say anything you want. That's in the room and the room is filthy. There is fecal matter on the walls. (laughs) And we call up and I am shackled to my boyfriend. Right. And he has a toilet brush, a kind of gimp mask in his mouth. (laughs) And we're dressed in this kind of S&M outfit and we call up room service. They call up the manager. The manager calls the police. We're in Kansas and the police had been kind of on my tail for about a week. And so there'd been some near arrests. Mm -hmm. And so we had a kind of escape plan, which this guy, his whole job was to get me out of the building. So the police were called. And he took me to the service elevator. The plan is go in the service elevator down to the back exit where there's a getaway car right. that will drive me out of the state. Right. And once we're out of the state, the police can't arrest right. me. Anyway, we get to the service elevator. Doors are closing. Suddenly, the hotel security open the doors. And they go, no, you, you, know, you, you can't go down there. Yeah. We then run down the stairs. He hears in his earpiece. He goes, the cops are downstairs. They're going to arrest you. They're looking for you, Sasha. We were on the 18th floor of the skyscraper in Kansas. We start running down this corridor. And we're still, you know, we wear, my friend's wearing a gimp mask. Yeah. And we were, you know, complete S&M outfits. <laughs> and, you know, friends got a sort of chain. And we're running. I, I go, where are we going? He goes, just run, run, follow me. And he runs the end of the corridor to a window. And I go, where are we going? And he goes, out. He lifts up the window and there is a fire escape outside. And we climb out onto the fire escape, and it was a 100-year-old building. Oh, my God. And it's a rickety fire escape. We're, you know, 13 floors up. And we start running down this fire escape. And I don't know if you know, know, a lot of these fire escapes, they don't go all the way down to the ground. 
so it goes to kind of the first floor and right. i said what and i can see the i can see the getaway car there and i go yeah. what do we do and i'm yeah. wearing these kind of high heels <laughs> and he goes jump i go what do you mean jump he goes jump quick the cops are coming jump so i jump and there are these two african-american sort of staff there mm-hmm. who are just having a cigarette break and suddenly from the heavens in front of them <laughs> lands this six foot three guy in lederhosen and high heels. And there was a little crack. I heard something, ran into the car and, you know, my co-star jumps down too. Yeah. I mean, he almost, he could have lost his head actually yeah. because he had a, he had a chain around his neck. And if it had caught on something, oh it could God. have ripped his head yeah, off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we get in the car, we drive out the state. Basically, I'd broken my heel. So, I mean, and that's probably one of many, I know, you know, close calls are the scene where (laughs) I forget what the circumstances were. I think you were bar at where you're in somebody's house and you come out in a towel, you ask to use the bathroom and you come out in a towel with their toothbrush and ask to use their, which toothpaste should you use? Yes, yes, that's right. (laughs) So what happened there? I mean, we ended up doing the sketch finally on Jimmy Kimmel about a month ago, but I go in, I ask to use the bathroom, right. and I come out, and I've got their toothbrush in, <laughs> in my mouth, and I'm wearing their towel, and I've had a shower. They throw me out the house wearing their towel, and they call the police, right. and I'm standing outside the front door, and I don't know what to do, because if I leave, then it's theft, because I'm right. stealing their towel. Right. But they had my costume inside the bathroom. Right. I needed my costume. Right. And foolishly, we made the Borat movie with no double. So we only had one costume. It was right. so idiotic. Oh, Jesus. And then finally, and I can hear the sirens coming. Right. And in the end, I jump into the car and, you know, lie on the floor and the right. car goes past. The police the car police. comes <laughs> But and I'm literally in a town for, for ages. So, um, and you eventually recovered the suit? Yeah. Well, eventually we did. I mean, yeah. it was in the police station. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, there were, yeah, the Bruno Cage fight. There were a lot of kind of situations where... It's close, yeah. And I know, you know, your interview style, which obviously is going to come back into play when we start talking about the, you know, the Who is America characters very shortly. I think it was probably cultivated with Ali G. And with Ali G, I guess the logistically, the way you would get somebody to sit down with you who people would not think would just sit down with a guy that looks like Ali G and has, yeah. they don't know much about, is it correct that you would basically walk in with the crew and then they wouldn't even realize until it was just starting that you're actually the guy that's doing the interview. Yes, essentially. And so that's how we end up with like Gore Vidal being interviewed about and with the misunderstanding that he's Vidal Sassoon. Yes. Or just exactly. something. Or, because, or President Trump. Yeah. Right. Or President. Well, yeah. So because we should say that was in 2003. You were way ahead of the game. He's doing The Apprentice. So let's take him as an example. How do you get him to agree to talk to you? And then once that day comes, what transpires? I mean, so we're making, you know, I think we were making a show for England, you know, and we had some pretty, you know, high-level names. So Donald Trump, he was Donald at the time, yes. not president, yes. was, felt pretty good about being interviewed along with heads of the CIA and, you know, a lot of members of Bush Senior's cabinet, you know, Nobel Prize winners and Boutros Boutros Ghali. So, you know, when you've got that list... yes. A lot of people want to be part of that list. It's like the Time 100. You want right. to be part of the Time right. 100. Right. But yes, I remember going to Trump Towers that morning, and he was actually the only guy, only one of my uh, guests. And obviously, we interviewed UN Secretary Generals, you know, 
cabinet ministers, Nobel Prize winners, they were always punctual. He was the only guy ever to keep us waiting. Really? He kept us waiting for an hour. I remember him screaming at one point, get me the mayor! And I think it was Giuliani was the mayor at the time, and he's screaming on the phone to Giuliani. Do you think he's doing that to impress you? I didn't think, at the time I found it, well, I think it's too intimidating. Yeah. So at the time I believed it, I was like, wow, you know, and yeah. bear in mind, you know, this is a second trip to America, right. you know. Right. Being there 20 years old with my mother's right. suitcase. And, you know, suddenly I'm there and we're in this very intimidating building. Right. And it's the head of the building and this this extremely wealthy guy and he's got the mayor on the phone and it's scary. And I remember yep. actually being intimidated when he came into the room. But he kept us waiting for an hour and I think he was hoping that the director was going to be the person interviewing him. Right. Who's this good looking, very <laughs> upper class guy called right. James Bobin. Right. But the moment he saw me, he was disappointed. <laughs> And he wanted to get out of there. Actually, before I even opened my mouth, right. he did not want to be interviewed by me. <laughs> and then he likes to brag now that he was the only one that ever walked out right away, but he didn't walk out right away. No, I mean, he sat there, you know, I mean, the interview was ludicrous. You know, I was asking him to put money behind an ice cream glove. You know, <laughs> what is the most popular thing in the world? And right. he said, music? Right. No, ice cream. <laughs> you know, what is the problem with ice cream? He goes, right. it melts? Right. <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah, so what is my idea? A non-melting ice cream? Wow, that is a fucking good idea. <laughs> no, it is an ice cream glove, you know. So what do you think something that ludicrous? Right, you know, people are going to, you know. He wanted to get out long before that. Right. But he could not have seen through it because otherwise, I mean, he says one thing in it that is, you know, completely wrong. So if he had seen through it, I don't know why he would say... You know, I ask him a question. I say, how long has there been business? Right. And he says, well, people have been doing business right, right. for millions of years right. and they were trading in rocks. Now, you know, I think, you know, most estimates are that human beings have been yeah, around no. for about 300,000 years. <laughs> and that right. I think the first evidence of trading in salt, not rocks, I think was in the 6th century oh by the Moors. God. Right. So He's not it doesn't, really... I mean, if he thought I was not real, he would not have made a stupid comment, no. you know. And I love that you went back three years later when you did the Borat movie and, and I guess took a dump in the front garden of Trump Columbus Circle. Uh, yes, yes, yes. Just, just to remind you, <laughs> yeah. you were so ahead of the curve. Okay, so when the Ali G show ended in 2004, you embarked on a period where you revisited Borat in the film in 2006 called Borat, Bruno in the film in 2009, and then basically said you're retiring those characters because obviously everyone now, you know, nobody's going to be fooled by those guys. And then I guess for the first time you did a scripted film with the dictator who was sort of this Gaddafi-like guy. What was the lure of getting into the movies? All of those were directed by Larry Charles. You guys clearly kind of hit it off. But what was the appeal of doing movies having done TV for those years? I always had a dream, which was to make one classic comedy film. Yeah. And I did one movie prior to Borat, which was the Ali G movie. And I didn't find it completely satisfying because it was not based in reality. And so I came to America and actually one of my first meetings was with Jim Brooks, mm -hmm. you know, the legend. Yes. I was talking to him about the Ali G movie and I said, listen, I just wish that it would be possible to make a reality movie, you know, but unfortunately it's not. And he said, well, don't ever say it's not. Why don't you come back here tomorrow? 
and let's let's spend a few hours in the room and let's mm -hmm. just see if it's possible. And I started spending a couple of sessions with Jim Brooks. Mm. And we just started thinking about, is it possible to have a reality movie where unwitting suspects, interviewees, are moving the plot forward? So can you, you know, that was the theory. Could we get people who didn't realize they were in a movie to actually create plot twists? Right. And we actually didn't even know whether that would happen until the first day of shooting on Borat. I mean, obviously, I went into Fox and I was like, okay, this is going to work. It's a reality movie. Real people are going to move the plot forward. And I was kind of bullshitting. You know, I, it was a complete risk. Right. And it, it worked, you know. So that was the risk of Borat. So how did you handle this idea of now becoming not just famous in England, but around the world where people, you know, know your characters everywhere. They don't really know you. That's been, I think, a deliberate thing for you to not let them know too, you know, not let them see you as yourself out in the world that much, even when you're accepting an award at something like the BAFTA Britannia Awards in 2013, which I, I mentioned to you earlier, I've never seen something so funny, but it's not even really, it's, it's not you, it's you doing a shtick as quote unquote you, where people should look at it at YouTube, the funniest thing I've ever seen in an award show, and my job is to cover award shows, <laughs> but the point is that what's the thought process behind guarding yourself that much there was never really a desire for me to become famous you know i wanted to have my cake and eat it too mm -hmm. which i achieved for a while i mean unfortunately in the days of you know iphones it's almost impossible so and instagram and right. paparazzi but right. i managed to achieve it for a number of years when the first few years in england ali g was a household name i mean even the queen mother <laughs> At the age of 101 was a fan, you know. That's the great. princess once said that she, at Christmas dinner, she said, <laughs> but nobody knew what I looked like. So as a result, I kept myself out of any public appearances. Right. I didn't go to any celebrity functions. I didn't go to any award shows. And that kind of eventually changed, actually, probably with the Globe, by yes. winning the Globe. That was for Borat in early 2007, for them to recognize it was something unlike what they'd ever recognized before because there really hadn't been anything like it before. The idea of, again, a guy as a character interacting with real people. And I think another thing, though, that happened after that, very soon after that, was that you started to appear in high-profile movies as other people's characters, which was interesting because I don't know that everyone even knew that you could or wanted to be an actor, not realizing that obviously a massive amount of acting goes into playing these characters but just to remind people Sweeney Todd for Tim Burton in 2007 Hugo for Martin Scorsese in 2011 Les Miserables for Tom Hooper in 2012 for a while it was looking like you might also do Freddie Mercury now we're hearing Chicago Seven. like the point is you are every bit as much an actor as anybody else right who well that's isn't... very kind I mean I try occasionally and I, I've been very very lucky and I've had the support of incredible directors so when you're with Scorsese mm -hmm. you're going to put in a good performance because he's yeah. not going <laughs> to he's going to protect you and the same with Tim Burton and Tom Hooper and you know you know even Adam McKay who I did Talladega yeah. Nights with yeah you know I've been extremely fortunate in that those directors early on realized that there was a degree of acting skill in what I was doing in the Allergy Show and Borat and that was employed in a different way with The Dictator because it was 
scripted, unlike the other movies. Yes, exactly. And by the way, I just have to say one quick, quick follow-up on The Dictator. I think it may have been my first or second year covering the Oscars, and I'm on the red carpet, and we're hearing at the end of it little bits and pieces about there's an incident, something's happened. Now, because you had been banned, there was fear that you were going to show up as the dictator on the red carpet. Yes. And we should say you were also Oscar-nominated years earlier for Borat, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, I was Oscar-nominated for Borat, and that year I was part of the cast of Hugo. So right. I played the stage. So I think Hugo had eight Oscar nominations, and so I was invited to the Oscars, also as a member of the Academy, of and... You know, I was in a movie with eight Oscar nominations. Yes. So, and then, so it was a, obviously a strange thing when the Oscars banned me from coming. <laughs> because they were just worried that in promotion of The Dictator, you're going to do something. Yes, exactly. So, in the end, we launched a kind of campaign in character saying that I should be allowed in. <laughs> they eventually allowed me in. Right. And I decided that I was going to empty Kim Jong-un's ashes <laughs> over Ryan Seacrest. Right. And the question was, how was I going to get it through security? Right. You know, what I realised was that they were going to be looking for me and, you know, going to see if I was going to do anything, you know, naughty. Right. And so I had a limo with uh, two women in it who were playing the kind of virgin gods of the dictator, which was kind of based on Gaddafi. Right. Who also had real virgin gods. Yes. Well, I'm not saying they're real virgins. (laughs) Well, we not haven't verified the, yeah. not, not after they start working <laughs> right, with right. So I had these ashes, but I'd changed the appearance of the this urn to make it look like it was a gift of flowers right. that I was giving to the Academy to say sorry. <laughs> and we were suddenly stopped in this limo. So I had a limo with these two women right. in it. And there was a cop there, and he said, we need to search the car. And I said, why? And he goes, uh, we want to check you're not bringing in weapons. I said, weapons? He goes, yes. And I see that he's got a picture of me on his clipboard. Oh, my God. And so he comes in, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, if he searches the car, he's going to find the urn. Right. And then I can't do the thing with Ryan Seacrest. <laughs> and Seacrest was always the target. Yes. <laughs> well, I only realized he was on the red carpet that morning, okay. so I only came up with the idea the night right. before. <laughs> and so I said, all right, well, you know, you're going to check the car, then you're going to check everything. I yeah. suppose you're going to have to start with checking us, yeah. the three of us. And the cop got embarrassed because he looked right. at the women. Right. And he said, you know what, it's fine. And we get <laughs> in there, they pull me to the side and they said, listen, yeah. you try anything. The head of the academy at the time said, you try anything and we're going to arrest you. And we've got five bodyguards on you and we've got the cops here. We've got the FBI and we will arrest you. So I was like, fine. So the problem is when you put five bodyguards on someone, yeah. all the bodyguards are looking you know, right. in different directions. Right. No one's actually looking Look at what the you're person. doing. And so I knew I had one chance right. to get it right. And, you know, it, it, obviously it wasn't ashes. It was a bit of soil, which... Uh, and Seacrest was not in on it. He was not in on it. And, in fact, I sent him a new suit afterwards. Um, <laughs> with an inscription. Yeah, with an inscription made by the children, children of Wadia. But, yes, and then I was not allowed into the auditorium. They Off turned you away. Yes. But it got, everybody was talking about the dictator. Yeah. So it worked. <laughs> yeah. All right. So the, bringing this up to my favorite comedy of 2018, Who is America? This, Thank this, you. Yeah. No, I, I laughed harder at this than anything I've seen in a long time. We should say, so, you know, you'd retired Borat and Ali G after Borat the movie. You'd retired Bruno after Bruno the movie. So it had been 15 years since the end of Ali G show and since we'd therefore seen a new Sasha Baron Cohen 
character, I guess, accepting the dictator, but that was a different kind of, it's not a improvised character or a, or a out in the world character. So many of us, I think, figured we're not going to ever see another one because at this point you're so well known. How would that possibly work? So the first question is, did you also have that fear or did you always have in the back of your head that makeup would be the way out of this? At the time of Borat, I actually met up with a few makeup specialists and I said, is there a way to do have makeup in the real world? And they said no. At that time, you know, it wasn't really possible. So even when we started doing the show, when I met up with different prosthetic experts, they said it was unlikely to be able to have makeup that's realistic enough to survive in daylight. Right. Okay, well, that's what I need. And I need it to survive for, you know, up to seven hours without being touched up. Because some of these interviews can be seven hours yeah, long. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, eventually I found a guy called Tony Gardner who had done Bad Grandpa and got nominated for it, actually. And he was recommended to me by Spike Jones and he said, that's the guy to do it. Amazing. And he goes, all right, we'll try it. He goes, I can't guarantee it's going to work, but I'll try. Did the characters precede the makeup? Did you have in your mind that these are guys I'd like to play if I can make it visually work? I mean, what happened was... Donald Trump got elected. Obviously, I'd been interested in this guy for a number of years. (laughs) And in the end of the movie, he contracts HIV. But that's another story. (laughs) At the end of, wait, which movie? That's the end of Grimsby. Oh, right, right, right. He contracts HIV. That was before he became uh, president. So he gets elected and I'm upset. And I'm in a kind of, you know, Hollywood elite liberal echo chamber of people sending each other emails which I think what a lot of people did after the election because they were so angry, they just sent each other articles. Right, right. Can you believe he's doing this? Right, and right, right. I realised, I thought, this isn't doing anything, and I was angry. And I felt I needed to do something to let my anger out, right. and that turned into creativity. So I sat down with my friend, Ant Hines, who I'd worked with for many years, and I said, OK, this is what we're going to do every week. We're going to come up with a new character. We're going to write for the character. We're going to design prosthetics for it. And at the end of the week, I'm going to spend a day with real people in character. And we did that for 10 weeks. Wow. We did 10 characters. Wow. And then the ones that I believe made it, I just want to remind people, maybe you can, any any remarks you want to make about what inspired the person or which were particularly challenging to become, what the key was playing them. But these are the new characters from Who is America? I'm going to start with my... I think my favorite, Dr. Naira Kane and <laughs> Cello, a far left activist and lecturer on gender studies. Just to remind people, this is among many other things, the guy who goes into middle America and tells them he's bringing a mosque there. Aren't they going to be excited? And obviously was not the case. Where did Dr. Naira come from? I didn't want the show to be partisan and I wanted it to mock extremists on either side. And I think there is an issue now with some some people who are so extreme on the left that it could actually destroy the left-wing movement and the liberal movement. Yes. And so I love the idea of also he was so extreme that he's almost unbelievable. I mean, he, you know, in one bit, he's, you know, my wife, she had an affair with a dolphin called Darwin. You know, and these people (laughs) believe, you know, when I'm going into sort of Trump land, they believe that this is yeah. what liberals are really NPR, like. And like, this is sure. what I'm talking about, right, you know. Right. This is why we've got Trump to, to right. defend it's ourselves. The Clinton Foundation. Yeah. <laughs> and so one of the skits was I went into Kingman, Arizona, and pitched building 
the world's largest mega mosque yes. outside of Mecca. So this is not just any, I know guys, it's not just any mosque. This is going to be the world's largest, not just a boutique mosque. No, no, no. <laughs> this is the world's largest mosque outside of America, you know. And bridging the divide. Yeah, That's bridging like... the divide. So it's a guy who's kind of very well meaning, but right. it, it, you know, idiotic in his own way. Yeah. I mean, that even that scene ended up being tricky because, you know, what I think we've seen since the start of Trump is a move towards violence. I mean, yeah. obviously there's always been violence in America. Yeah. And sort of gun violence, but you know, part of Trump's rhetoric, including against myself, is violent. Mm -hmm. I mean, he suggested that I should end up in hospital. And, you know, that's, you know, a lot of these kind of strong men leaders, mm -hmm. you know, obviously advocate violence yeah. and, you know, the idea of punching people and I'm going to yeah, knock yeah. him out. And there was a fear that I was taking this kind of ultra-liberal character into Kingman. What would happen when there's an audience, not an audience, a right. group, you know, we're doing a, a town hall meeting and they've got guns. Right. And, uh, in fact, at the end of the first session, and we did two, mm -hmm. One of the guys said, now I know why you took our guns away from us at the oh, door. Okay. And I go, why? He goes, because we would have used them. Oh, my God. We realized that we did that back to back. We did two recordings of that. Yeah, yeah. And the first group of people, we took their guns away. And it was kind of slightly ridiculous. We had a bodyguard there. And he said, listen, I've prepared this thing for you. It's a clipboard and it's bulletproof. He goes, so if somebody pulls a gun out and I can't get to them in time and starts shooting... Just put this in front of you. I go, well, I go, but in front of what? I go in, front of, in front of my heart, in front of my head, you know. Oh, my he goes, God. He goes, I don't, he goes, listen, he goes, that's the size of the clipboard. You know, oh I'm dealing with what I got, right, man. Right. And, and then so we did the first one and people were getting very angry. They were threatening violence. And then we realized we were going to do the second one. We couldn't take everyone's gun away or they would keep their guns in their right. car. And so I had to say to the crew, I said, listen, there's a chance that you know this might get violent oh so God. if you you have to actually choose it well we didn't we said rather than opt out we right. want you to opt in you know if you want to stay here right. write your name down here oh my god and otherwise we're assuming we're taking a bus and we're taking the rest of you home oh my god and so we did it again and i remember there was one guy who's a kind of a hell's angel in the front of the crowd and i go Whoa. i go where are you from sir he goes i'm from hell <laughs> is that hell arizona or <laughs> Where exactly That's is that? Great. But he was, uh, you know. It's oh, one of the funniest. I, I did one interview with Naira with the ex-attorney general. Actually, it didn't make it into the show. Alberto Gonzalez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, of course, was the guy who allowed Dick Cheney. Torture, and yeah. Bush, yeah, to, uh, to torture. And Naira assumes that he is this head, a head torturer for a Mexican drug cartel. And so I do this whole interview where, you know, I'm going, so tell me, how realistic is narcos? <laughs> is it, you know, and he's like, well, I don't really know. You know, you know, people in your position, they party hard, you know, and they die young. Is that ever a concern of yours? And he's like, well, not really, you know. Oh and then at the God. end, he reveals that he was the attorney general and not a torturer for a drug gang. And I go, I, I feel deceived. I, you know, I thought you were the head torturer of a drug cartel, but it's worse. You're a Republican. Okay. You know, so. Oh, my God. Well, we got so many of these great ones to cover. Let's go to Gio Minaldo, an Italian billionaire fashion photographer with his own TV series. He lands the uh, coveted interview, among other things, with O.J. Simpson. This was hilarious. Yes. So he is a kind of Italian billionaire. And what I really wanted to investigate there was the world of greed, what yes. people will do for money. 
particularly, you know, this is kind of post-Harvey Weinstein. And yeah. we, we wanted to look into when people know that somebody is abusive, how does that network become, get created? You know, so what happens in the room? You know, why do we allow these people to do whatever for money? Right. So one of the interviews was I was buying a yacht for, you know, this from my friend, my very good friend, you know, Colonel, he will be a little bit, I can't say his name, but he will be a bit Assad if he <laughs> hears about it. Uh, you know, very serious guy, you know. So I was b b building a yacht. I wanted to build a yacht right. for Colonel Assad. And this yacht uh, manufacturer was ready to build it right. for Colonel Assad. And they were going we to be shipping women in. Yeah. And during the interview, I received fellatio from my girlfriend. <laughs> Yes. And he carries on the interview. You yeah, know, no, that's amazing. And so the idea was at one point, okay, okay, I want to interview O.J. Simpson. And the aim was to try to get him to confess to, <laughs> yes. you know, we can't say whether he murdered them or whether right. it's a legend murder. But, you know, there's a huge amount of research and study and prep that goes into all the characters because they have to be real. So someone like O.J., I have to sit in a room with him for three hours. But how do you even get him in the room? We thought it was going to be impossible, and we found out a way to do it through his lawyer. You uh, gave him a little little stipend or something? Well, the lawyer, you know, I think the lawyer organizes, it was the law that there would be money down the line, yes, yes. that I was representing <laughs> a shake. Right, right. And, like, if OJ meets up, then there could be millions yes, down the line. Yes. You know, does your client want to meet up? Right. And so he was interested. And so I sat down, the, the idea, again, how do you get OJ to confess? Right. So we found one of the legendary FBI interrogators and I basically studied with him for a while. He sort of gave me all the kind of things that, you know, how do we get the guy who's never confessed to confess? And we're not implying that he's actually murdered him. Right, because, of course uh, not. Of course not so. saying that. I mean, we're still brilliant. looking for the killer. Absolutely. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, so we had like, you know, he gave me a kind of very detailed structure of everything that needed to be in the room. I had to memorize kind of OJ's football career and refer to kind of really obscure games that he'd won <laughs> and every movie that he'd done and flatter his ego for an hour and a half. Right. I followed in detail all the kind of advice by this uh, yes. interrogator. Let's go to Iran Murad, an Israeli anti-terrorism expert, possibly, uh, I believe he may share a name with a relative of, of yours. Yes, my brother, yes. the uh, composer, Iran yes. Murad. And uh, he, his big get is Dick Cheney. Yes, Dick Cheney. So I wanted a character that would kind of expose this irrational fear of Muslims because there's always a scapegoat. And at the moment, actually, now at the moment, there are a couple of yes. them. There are a few of them. We've got Mexicans, we've got Muslims, and Jews, Jews are coming back. Of course. In. So, um, you know, at the time, you know, there was this kind of irrational fear of Islamic terrorism. Now, not saying Islamic terrorism, extreme radical Islamic terrorism right, is right. not fear but you know you know obviously most of terrorism is done by kind of domestic terrorists right so it was kind of you know a way into that and Iran Murad was based on a uh, Krav Maga teacher that I had at one point who would be like Sasha kick me I want you to kick me in the balls now okay what do you mean I'm not gonna <laughs> kick it Sasha wake up you've got to be aware you've got to know how to do this kick me in the balls and I go, I'm not going to kick you in the... Kick me in the balls! Yalla, kick me in the balls! I go, okay. And I, like, den gently right, right, tap right. him in the crotch. Right. Sasha, kick me with the full force in the balls. Yalla, kick me in the balls! I go, I'm not. Yalla, kick me! I kick him in the balls and he does some little thing. Sasha, your children here. And 
yes, okay, I will use the rubber gun then. <laughs> you know. So, you know, there are, you know, I've had, because I've had these kind of uh, security yeah, threats yeah. in the past, yeah. usually the studios get assign me some kind of high-end bodyguard when we're right. doing the publicity tour. Right. So on Borat, they thought that Kazakhstan would probably quite in a paranoid way thought the Kazakhstan would take me out. Go after you. <laughs> and so they've hired these kind of crazy. Right. We had one guy who was an Israeli bodyguard. I said, you know, I told him I'd just come back from Jordan while I was shooting Bruno. And he said, he goes, oh, I've never seen Jordan. What is it like? <laughs> I go, what do you mean you've never seen Jordan? There's been peace with Jordan right. for 25 right. years. He goes, I've never seen an Arab country during daylight. <laughs> I go, wait a minute, what was your job in the army? He goes, my speciality was coming out of the water while shooting. <laughs> you know, so I had these ridiculous characters. Sasha, your only danger here is dehydration. Please drink. <laughs> drink. Not just a sip, a schlug. Right. <laughs> and please, Santa Lucia. And so with that kind of a guy, you're going to, I mean, how do you get Dick Cheney? Again, it's, it's ego, really. You know, someone like Dick Cheney. I mean, this was the surprise that he was proud of everything that he's yeah. done of his accomplishments and he just wants somebody to give him an award and say well done you know <laughs> we job, love you right? dick you dick. are my hero please can i get the dick pic and, and i realized about half an hour before the dick cheney interview obviously you know i so with each of these characters i learn a very very extensive and we create a very very extensive backstory because yeah, yeah. i need to be prepared to answer any question course, they ask course. from where you're staying how do you get in where were you born anything right for you know up to seven hours so with dick cheney i was with him for three and a half hours and half an hour beforehand i'm thinking okay this guy's not an idiot no. he's the vice president right and we had a kind of israeli army guy there who was helping we had a lot of guns with us because at the same day we were doing all the kind of something called the kindergarten program yes. in dc <laughs> and so we had a lot of sort of weapons with us right and uh, some fake and some real and so I said to him, I go, I realized I needed to appear like I was a convincing special ops Israeli mm. guy. I said, listen, I go, Yaron, uh, I've got half an hour till the vice president comes. Right. In the next half hour, I want you to just tell me everything about your military career. Right. And, you know, from the way it started, everything. Basically, this interview. Yes. And he goes, okay, when I was seven years old, I remember going to school. I had a lunchbox in one hand and in the other hand, a gas mask. <laughs> And he wrote down everything that he'd done, and I basically memorized everything for half an hour. Dick Cheney comes in the room, and he says, listen, before we start this, can I meet the interviewer? And they go, this is him, it's a run, run. He goes, keep the cameras off, yeah. and I want to find out who this guy is. Yeah. So he decided to quiz me. He goes, tell me about your military career. I go, vice president, from the age of seven, <laughs> I went to school with a lunchbox in one hand and a gas mask in the other. And basically, so I detailed my entire military career. That's fantastic. And then I ended up spending three and a half hours with him. And he he just enjoyed it, being able to talk about, to basically gloat about what he'd done. You know, one boy, one boy I tell him, you know, tell me, did they ever make a, a statue of you in Iraq? Because <laughs> I don't know if they have, actually. What? They didn't make it? You are hero to them. You, have, you know, without you, the... Iraq would have been right. a breeding ground for terrorists. <laughs> you know, think what would have been happened. There could have been uh, terrorism could have spread to Europe. Right, you right. saved everybody. And then you he got, goes, yes, we did. Yeah. <laughs> and then you got your uh, waterboarding well, uh, kit. Yeah, I got him to sign a waterboarding amazing, kit. Incredible. Yeah. Okay, so let's go to the next guy, OMG Wizboy OMG, a Finnish YouTuber who, among other people, spends time with Jar Pyle, right? Yes, Jar Pyle. <laughs> so, te- yeah. 
If President Trump asked to give you a blowjob, would you say yes? Well, I think I'd be inclined to. Yeah. Uh, so that was really interesting. The creation of that character was really bizarre, actually. So during that period where I was creating the characters, one thing I wanted to do was a internet character. Yeah. Because it felt like these, you know, I think the highest earner on YouTube is a seven-year-old. Yeah, it's incredible. So I wanted this. I was interested in people like PewDiePie who yes. come out with, you know, anti-Semitic comments, but it didn't make any difference. <laughs> you know, they're a lot of them completely ignorant, but they have huge influence. Exactly. In a way, they are kind of the modern Ali G's because yes. they're completely ignorant, but they're, they're they have <laughs> access to the youth audience. So we wrote for this character, me and Ant and uh, Dan Mazer and a guy called Dan Swimer. And we get to the day and there's a guest in the studio. And the character is American in the morning. He's an American yes, yes. unboxing uh, YouTube star. And it wasn't good. It just didn't work. I walk, into, walk back into the writer's room. You know, so we have a tiny little writer's room next to the, yes. this stage. I said, I don't know, it's not so good. I go, let me change the voice. I go, you know, really? Now you're going to change the voice now? The other guy's already waiting, isn't it? Right. The, the real is there's a politician waiting yeah, there. Yeah. I go, what about I do Swedish? And somebody said, well, give, give me a Swedish accent. I said, well, well what are we going to do? that's a terrible accent. I go, okay, I'll make him Finnish then. <laughs> and I walk into the room, and obviously I didn't speak any Finnish. Right. And... I just start speaking Swedish. And this guy believed that I was finished. And suddenly the kind of the silliness of the voice. You found him. I, I kind of found him. And, you know, I suppose that is the balance where I want the character to be funny but he has believe to be believable. grounded in reality. So, well, you know, I mean, that's certainly the case with Billy Wayne Ruddock Jr., PhD, far right wing conspiracy Billy, theorist, Billy Wayne Ruddock Jr., and self proclaimed citizen journalist who yes, sits down yes, with sir. Bernie Sanders, among others. Yeah. Bernie Sanders was my first interview in DC. And I sit down with him for half an hour, and he is upset at the end. Because, you know, I said, sir, my father, he lost his penis fighting for this country, sir. He lost his penis fighting for this country. <laughs> what do you have to say to that, sir? <laughs> lost his penis fighting for this. And he goes, well, I don't, because I don't know the details about that. Uh, Billy, I really, I really don't know how to ask it. Why, well, lost, lost his penis. <laughs> lost fighting for this country. You tell Because you want it. And basically, he complained afterwards and he was suspicious that something was up. was up. He didn't know it was me. And so I was in D.C. We had three weeks of interviews lined up. Did anyone ever figure out it was you? No. Nobody. No. <laughs> but he was like, who is this? He called up, you know, right. CBS. And, you know, they thought at one point maybe it was a terrorist group. Right. They were threatening to bring it to Congress. So I had to live undercover in D.C. for three weeks. Uh, oh, my and God. And when I mean undercover... I had to ensure because I had to ensure that no one took a photo ever of me or ever saw yeah. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Otherwise, word would get out that I was in DC. Unbelievable. So for three weeks, I basically didn't see daylight. Unbelievable. And I was going in and out and living nuts. in disguise and yeah, not using my credit card for <laughs> oh for three God. weeks. So yeah, literally. Crazy. Unbelievable. I mean, that, that's the difference. I remember the first time I did a real movie, which was Talladega Nights. Yeah. I get on set 
and there's a trailer. I go, what's this? I go, it's a trailer. And I get in there and there's a bed and there's a TV and you have somebody bringing you. Right. I go, what do you mean? I have my own. T- I have a bed <laughs> on set. You know, I come from this life where these kind of shows are, you know, they're grueling. You're right. living, you know. Oh, my God. Well, the last here. of these characters I'm going to ask you about is Rich Sherman, recently released British ex-con who makes art with bodily fluids and famously interacts very successfully with an art gallerist who contributes pubic hairs to his collection. Tell us about him. Rick Thurman, he's a very nice guy. He just, you know, he did, he did one thing wrong. He did one crime just 14 times. <laughs> and he's a sort of very nice, well-meaning guy who wants to do the right thing, but unfortunately he's, you know, unfortunately strangled a few people. Yes. And, <laughs> but he wants to make it in the art. Right. And so it was really a way to expose the pretentiousness of high art. So he becomes a chef at one point and convinces a food critic to eat human flesh. (laughs) You know, this is the finest sourced meat. You know, this is brave Chinese dissident (laughs) in a raspberry coolie. Please enjoy. Um, And and with this woman, she was actually great. Yes. She, She got interviewed afterwards. And she said that she actually loved the experience. Obviously, she, she believed that Rick Sherman was real. Right. You know, I sat with her for a couple of hours. And then, actually, I sent her some of the paintings oh, did you? that I made. Because <laughs> I was going to say, you know, with certain of these people, it's their obvious, like, nobody's going to feel too sorry if you give O.J. Simpson a hard time. She was probably the most sympathetic person on the other side, right? Yes, but I think you give themselves a chance to reveal their true yes. selves. Yes. So if they are the kind of person who uses the N-word, yes. they'll use the N-word, Absolutely. which is obviously what Jason Spencer did. We should, right. you know. he, we should say Georgia state representative who is no longer a Georgia state representative after that. And also Dana Rohrbacher, the U.S. congressman from Moscow, is also no longer in Congress having... I think that's called a Freudian slip. He's not the congressman from Moscow. No, but I, no he it was, was yeah, deliberate yeah, oh, slip. Deliberate. Yes, okay, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, he was... Yes. Uh, He's gone too. So yes, yeah, so he was in a, a piece that we did called Kindergartens, where yes. he supported arming three-year-olds with machine guns. Final thing, you've been so generous with your time here. And no, 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 great. no. It's a pleasure talking about myself. <laughs> this is going to just be literally, please, just the first thing that comes to your mind. Will there be a second season of Who Is America? No. Two reasons. One, yeah. I'll never be able to get a politician to bear his buttocks <laughs> while screaming. Uh, <laughs> God bless America and scream the N-word. Do you Uh, have other characters ready to go if you chose to go? Not really. I mean, no. I think, you know, it's like the Ali G show in England. I did one season and, you know, the the idea is not to make it a Seinfeld or an SNL. but And also it is grueling. It's five hours in makeup every morning. So you're waking up at 3.30 in the morning. You're out of the chair by, you know, 10. And then it's an hour to take it off at the end of the day. I'm too lazy to do that stuff. Any subject that you will not do comedy about, just the third rail? Yes. I mean, there is a debate in the writer's room about anything we do. We want to make sure that we're not bolstering up prejudices, that we aren't just trying to shock, that we're revealing stuff, that they're... Listen, I'm a comedian. I'm not a politician. I have no obligation to be moral or ethical. In fact, people from my profession are generally assumed to be deeply unethical. Yes. However... 
we feel we tried to do the right thing and you know nobody is misedited you know that we have kind of strict journalistic standards even though we're not obligated to yeah because it's a comedy show so um you know someone like matt gates who yes, was interviewed the in the yeah. kindergarten thing of yes. supporting three-year-olds and machine guns we leave him in because he says you know that's a ridiculous idea i'm not going to support giving machine guns to three-year-olds <laughs> And then you obviously show the other congressmen that are do. schmucks, yeah. Um, Finally, prior to this podcast, I think been all that much that, you know, there's been a, a very select number of interviews that you've done, so people don't necessarily have a great idea of who you yourself are like. So let me close by asking you, which of your characters are you personally actually most like? Hopefully none of them. <laughs> I mean, they're all generally reprehensible people. In, you know, I don't know, there were six from this show... Four from the others, I don't know. Listen, when I was 11 years old, I certainly there was a bit of Ali G in me. Right, right. You know, the physical comedy from Borat. When maybe you there's up some in of America. me accidentally yeah, uh, yeah. falling over. I don't know. I don't know. Well, it's, I, I look forward to hopefully hopefully more in the future. And thank th you very thank much. You well, so it's so been privileged. wonderful thank talking you. about myself. <laughs> and now let's go for lunch. Let's Everybody, <laughs> I'm taking him out for lunch. I'm going to ask him about him because it can't just be about me. I mean, I'm very generous, not a narcissist in any way. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.